be reading this morning, verses uh, 3 through 11. Let's begin actually in uh, verse 1. And we'll read through verse 11. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Let's bow in prayer again. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to open the Word of God, to stand and proclaim your truth. May we have discernment by and from your Spirit. And Lord, may we as well have hearts that are receptive to that which is revealed to us of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his preeminence and his sufficiency. And Lord, may we live our lives accordingly, as Paul even prayed for these believers at Colossae, so also may we, Lord, have the same desire as Paul did that we, uh, as a body of Christ, one another, we might grow in the understanding and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, becoming fruitful and being made more fruitful because of the Spirit of God using the truth within our lives, conforming us to the image of our dear Savior. We ask that all this be done according to your will and your purpose, and may we, as, as often, Lord, we have prayed as the clay is in the hand upon the will of the potter. Lord, may we be moldable, pliable within your hand. May you work your will and your purpose, shaping us as it so pleases you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week, uh, we began, of course, our study of verse 3 of this chapter, which we began to see Paul's prayer is is uh, declared as is custom to Paul within his epistles, within his writings. Uh, there is definitely a signature style which Paul possessed, and I've shared that with you now uh, a few times. But we find that Paul would normally introduce himself uh, in the letter, and he's stating that this is Paul, an apostle or servant or, or a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain, he addresses the reader to those he, he is writing to unto, and then also he will then begin with a prayer for them, concerning them. And so we find the same thing to be true here. If you look back at verses 1 and 2 just briefly, I do not want to belabor this or spend any time here really, but just to address it, Paul identifies himself, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy is our brother. So Timothy is with Paul, of course, 
And he's saying that he is an apostle by the will of God. Paul did not self-appoint himself. And this was proven by the testimony of the Lord unto other apostles and believers, and also the testimony of Paul himself as he lived his life, as he declared the gospel. And the signs of the apostles were with Paul. And he makes that statement uh, throughout some of his writing. We also see that he says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And in stating he is an apostle, Paul does so again, I believe, largely for this purpose, because it's true, obviously, but yet because he had never met the church at Colossae. He did not establish this church. He was not the one who founded it, and he had never even visited them. And so they did not know him. He did not know them except by their testimony. And so he is addressing them as an apostle. And remember, the church is established and built upon the doctrine of the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Our Lord Jesus ministered to the apostles. He addressed them. He taught them, if you recall, in his disciples, but then also in the apostle Paul. If you remember, we are told that Paul was away. He himself says that he was in Arabia for the period of around three years or so. And during that period of time, it was the Lord who taught him. And he goes on in his epistles to write and states that he did not learn this gospel of the other apostles or disciples of Jesus, but that the Lord himself taught him this. So Paul was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ during that period of three, three and a half years where he's in Arabia. God is teaching him just as the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry was teaching his disciples and some of them becoming the apostles. And so we understand then that, that, that in that process, God was teaching Paul. Second, he says, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he calls them saints and faithful brethren. Again, he's never met them, but this is their testimony as he will explain that Epaphras has testified of them and their faithfulness to the gospel, their faithfulness to the Lord, and that he... Uh, that they, they, were, uh, they were saints, they were believers, they were consecrated, holy. And, and obviously there was evidence of them being consecrated and, and holy unto the Lord that was present within their lives. Now I share with you as well, before we move any further, and I think this is important as well to recognize within the prayer that we will begin to examine this morning, Paul's prayer, that we find that the church was not without facing its own difficulties and the struggles or problems that lied within, just like every church has problems Every body of believers has difficulties, and there is always a, a potential. There's always a possibility. There's always the, uh, the reality that, that error is, is at the door, if you will, that error is, could, can and could be present. And so uh, concerning the church at Colossae, as I've mentioned to you, uh, Gnosticism is a problem that they, which they are dealing with. And, of course, this is that, that mystical uh, part of it is a mystical revelation of God to man, not a spiritual revelation, a mystical revelation of God to man that they might know things only by God uh, mysteriously making them known. And then also there was this idea of denying the deity and or the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he never did come in the flesh or he who came in the flesh was not actually the son of God and that the spirit of God came upon him but was not within him. That's another teaching of the, Gnostic, of the Gnostics. And so Gnosticism is broad in its definition. I shared with you a couple of times uh, a statement that I read concerning that where someone stated and it said Gnosticism, trying to define Gnosticism is like trying to nail down a floppy fish. And so the reality is it, there's so much going on with it and so much change that's taking place that and such a broad definition of the term or, or what's being embraced under it that it's difficult to really define. But those are some of the beliefs and some of the things of which Paul is dealing with even in this letter because as we know, the emphasis of the letter is that Jesus Christ is 
preeminent, that he is above and before all. And so Paul is, is emphasizing that truth throughout this text. Now, our focus last week, as you recall, was that Paul said we give thanks, verse 3, to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And in order for us to better understand this matter of prayer, I want to review briefly for a few moments from last week, bringing us into the actual examination of Paul's prayer itself. But if you recall with me, last week, in order to uh, help us to better understand the, uh, this matter of prayer, and also in an attempt to prevent the mistake of simply overlooking the importance of this prayer which Paul prayed for the Colossian believers, we considered the importance of prayer as it has been represented in the altar of incense within the Old Testament tabernacle. As we discovered, the altar of incense not only foreshadows Christ's ministry of supplication on our behalf, but also serves as a picture of prayer in our own lives. We find the Lord's instruction concerning the structure and use of the altar of incense in Exodus 31 through 10. And this is just going to overview this. So if you were not with us, if you've not studied this out ever in the tabernacle, I fully understand that, that uh, you may not be familiar with this, but it's important that we recognize this because of last week I believed it to be important to introduce to you again because of the importance of prayer and how we would easily read verse 3 and just continue on. Praying always for you and just really overlook the significance of what Paul is actually stating concerning this matter of prayer. Let me mention this before we read Exodus 30. If you recall with me too, prayer and supplication, though supplication is prayer, supplication is in association or related to us praying for others. It's not us praying for ourselves. And so prayer and supplication is often accompanied together within Paul's epistles and his exhortations, And prayer is us coming before God ourselves, humbling ourselves before Him, even making our own petitions known according to His will, may it be done. But then supplication is when we are praying for others. And so the altar of incense in the tabernacle is a foreshadowing of Christ's supplication on our behalf, but it's also representative of our prayer before God ourselves. And so it's important we recognize that. So Exodus 30, we won't read all the verses. 1 through 10, we find this instruction. I just want to read verses uh, 6, 8, and 9. And he says, And thou shalt put it, the altar of incense, before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. This is important, as we'll see further, because of the important place that the altar of incense had. It was next to the most holy place, which was where the ark of the covenant was, the innermost part of the tabernacle, in which the Lord says, this is where I will meet with you. So prayer is is seated, uh, the altar of incense is seated or placed just before, right beside the veil of the most holy place, already within the holy place. And so it's important we recognize that. Verse 8 says, And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord. That's important, perpetually. It's being offered unto God throughout your generations. Verse 9, Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. Now we saw from Scripture last week that it's not uncommon to find incense related to prayer. In Psalm 141, 2, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Luke 1.10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So there was, there's a connection between incense and prayer throughout the scriptures, not just these two verses either. Just to give you an example, though. Now, the altar was a place which the sacrifice took place, meaning the brazen altar. When you come to the altar 
incense, it is still a sacrifice, but it is that of a perfume being offered unto the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor being offered to him. And it was consumed upon the altar as it was offered unto the Lord. And the Lord provided specific instructions concerning the incense itself in the latter portion of Exodus chapter 30. In verses 34 through 36, the Lord provided the recipe for making the perfume. And then in verse 37 and 38, the Lord warns against the people misusing the perfume for personal consumption. Verses 37 and 38 of Exodus 30. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, he's already given the instruction of the recipe for it. He says, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof, it shall be holy unto, or holy unto thee before the Lord, or for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that, to smell thereto, shall even be cut off from his people. So the incense and the perfume was not to be duplicated or fabricated for personal use, but was to be consecrated unto the Lord. And so here again, just to give you an example, our, our prayer is never to be uh, self-centered, meaning this, not that we can't make our petitions before God, we are commanded to do so, but it always is to be according to his will. Remember the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever he prayed, uh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, none the less, not any less, not my will, but thine be done. What an example for us. The Lord is setting in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, this is not what I would desire. Jesus was saying, it's not that I want to suffer in the flesh. It's not that I want to die in the flesh. That's not not present in me for that. But greater than my desire for self-preservation in the flesh is my desire that God the Father's will be accomplished as it should be in and through me. And of course, the Lord Jesus is always in alignment with the Father's will. But this is an example for us to show us that it's not about our will, though we can make our petitions known before the Lord, ultimately we are to come in submission unto Him. Our prayer is more than an act of sacrifice, but rather it is the sacrifice of our personal will and desires and submission to the purpose and will of our Heavenly Father. In other words, we need to understand that it is not the time we spend in prayer that is sacrificial. It is the heart of submission in prayer that is the sacrifice. So whether we are praying for five minutes, just a, oh Lord, or or just a five-minute prayer, or whether it be we are in our constant communion before the Lord or with the Lord throughout the day, or whether it be that you have a time set aside that you spend five hours somewhere alone in prayer. You can spend five hours alone in what you call prayer, and it be a strange incense unto the Lord. It never be. That is not the sacrifice. The time is not the sacrifice. The submission of ourselves is the sacrifice. Us being consumed unto the will of God, denying self, dying to self, this is the sacrifice. And so from this example of the altar of incense, which again is a shadow of the supplication of our Lord Jesus on our behalf and a picture of our prayer unto the Lord, as we we considered three things. First, briefly, the importance of prayer in our lives, Exodus 30, verse 6, and we won't spend time to go there. But the altar of incense was the closest piece of furniture, as I mentioned a while ago, to the Ark of the Covenant, which was within the most holy place where the Lord met with his people. And so God offered this altar of incense unto the people. He positioned it in a place that was just before the place they would meet with him, literally. Second was the purpose of prayer in our lives, Exodus 37 through 9. Biblical prayer consists of sacrifice. And again, prayer is not a means to get what we want. 
It is a means by which we submit or sacrifice our will to the Lord. Let me remind you of our misunderstanding of prayer so often. I've shown you this, just a simple illustration of this. But this is how most people today view prayer. Here is God, and here they are. And that somehow, by them praying, they're going to get God to move from over here to where they are to align with them. That is not what prayer is intended to be, nor will it ever accomplish that. Here God is, and here we are, and as we pray, you know the power of prayer is God is bringing us to submission to align with his will, not that he will align with our will. Hence, we should always, from a heart of submission, pray unto the Lord humbly, not my will. Lord, these are our petitions. This is what we believe to be good and righteous and holy, and these are our deepest, greatest desires. However, where I am not aligned with you, Lord, forgive me and align me with you that I may be submitted to you. There's the power of prayer. Look, the power of prayer is not, I'm, I'm going to, hopefully you don't have this on your bumper in the, out in the parking lot. We'll see a bunch of torn off bumper stickers off of vehicles when we walk out. But prayer does not change things. Prayer changes us. The power of prayer is that God is changing us through our submission unto him as we would pray to him. So we see the purpose of prayer. Uh, the fact that this altar of incense was at the highest position in the holy place it was next to the veil of the most holy place, teaches us as well that dying to ourselves, surrendering and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ is the highest calling and greatest duty of the believer. Exodus 30 verse 9 teaches us that God will accept no strange incense and any prayer offering of so-called praise, so-called worship, so-called sacrifice unto the Lord that is not offered in submission to the Lord and his will is a strange incense. The perfume was not to be made for them to consume it unto themselves. It was wholly consecrated unto the Lord. Prayer is never meant to be consumed with us, but rather we should be consumed with prayer in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, we saw the power of prayer in our lives, Exodus 30, verse 10. The incense was accepted on the basis of the blood of the sacrifice which had been made. This is so important and so overlooked, I'm afraid. We all know that when the high priest went on the Day of Atonement, he took the, the blood of the offering, and what did he do with it? Sprinkled it upon the mercy seat. But prior to that, do you know what the Scripture says? That the blood of the Atonement was to be sprinkled upon the altar of incense. And most people never even acknowledge that or recognize that, but that is of extreme importance, and here is why. We are not accepted on the basis of our obedience or our worth or our value, we are accepted before God the, throne, God the Father at his throne. Might I say it to you like this? We only have been given access to the very throne of our heavenly Father because of, or on the basis of the sufficiency and preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. In other words... You can cry and pray and wail all you will, but that is not what gains the ear of God. The only way that we are granted access to God the Father is through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His sufficiency as God's atonement on our behalf. And so the altar of incense had the blood of the atonement sprinkled upon it as well as the mercy seat. Prayer in our lives is powerful not because we learn to pray well as we may categorize it, but rather because the Father has accepted the blood of the sacrifice of His Son at Calvary. Hebrews 10, 19-22, Hebrews 4, 14-16 help to emphasize this truth. Prayer is not only to be for us, but supplication includes, as I've mentioned, our prayers for others. So when any prayer or spirit we possess, 
when praying to the Lord is anything other than submission or worship to the Lord, then we are offering a strange incense before him. And what's more is that we must never forget that we are only again accepted and provided access to the Father through the atonement made for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, prayer again, the strange incense is whenever something other than that which God demanded and required was being offered upon the altar of incense. What does God demand and require of us as believers? Submission. Not my will, but thine be done. If you attempt to approach God in any other spirit or attitude, you're offering a strange incense unto God, which is putrid in his, in his nostrils, so to speak, anthropomorphically speaking, which is putrid in his nostrils, not a sweet-smelling savor. What was our Lord Jesus Christ? It's, it's scripture tells us that his sacrifice, his offering of himself was a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. What are we commanded to be? A sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. How can we be that when Christ alone is that? It's whenever we understand that it's through his submission and his, his commitment to the will of the Father that all that was accomplished in and through our Lord Jesus was pleasing unto God the Father. And that is the only way that our lives will ever be pleasing unto him as well. So now that we've considered how important prayer is, and I believe that that was important last week, and again to review again this morning, we will begin to look literally into the, into the prayer which Paul prayed. Prayer is important in the place it has in our lives, the basis upon which our prayer is accepted by the Heavenly Father, and the power that it has in that God is ever changing us as we are submitting to His will. And so we'll examine the prayer Paul actually prayed for the church at Colossae with this understanding. Now within this prayer, as was common for Paul to do. He does not pray for himself, nor does he ask the church at Colossae to pray for his release from prison. This is one of the four prison epistles. And while Paul writes this epistle, where is he? In prison. And notice, not that it would have been wrong for Paul to say, if you will, pray that God may deliver me from this prison, that I may go and continue to proclaim the gospel according to his will. There's nothing wrong with that, but he doesn't do that. What does Paul do? He never once here in this introductory prayer mentions himself as far as his needs or the burden he's under or the great torment or the persecution or the suffering. Not that that is wrong to mention that they might be prayed concerning these matters according to the will of God. But here we see truly what Paul knew was the will of God. Because I believe Paul was aware at this moment in time. Guess what God's will was for Paul? Anyone have any idea? If you will turn to Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm joking. No one understands. Think about this for a moment with me. What was God's will for Paul at this moment in his life? To be in prison. He is in prison and Paul understood that. What was God's will for the church at Colossae? It's in Paul's prayer. That they grow in understanding. That they mature in the faith. That they become fruitful. So what does Paul invest his prayer in? towards or in, them becoming fruitful, <laughs> and them becoming, uh, growing and maturing in the faith and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is doing. He, is, he understands God's will to be at this moment that he is in prison, but then also for them to mature in the faith and to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So within this prayer, Paul's, Paul is acknowledging the need for the church at Colossae and focuses on the spiritual growth and maturity of the Colossian church. So let's look at verse 3 again now. We give thanks to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 
Let's look at the manner in which Paul prayed. Notice how Paul begins his prayer, and this also was very common for Paul to do. Paul prayed with thankfulness. We give thanks. Paul begins his prayers for the church at Colossae in the same manner he does other churches to whom he had written epistles or letters. Paul begins this prayer by expressing thanks to the Lord for the church. The unity with this, these Colossian believers, as Paul expressed in verse 2 when stating, God our Father, remember we saw that on last week, accompanied by Paul's prayer of thankfulness for the Colossian church, was surely a source of encouragement to these believers in Colossae, especially considering the fact that they had never met one another. Paul had never met them, and they had never met Paul. And yet Paul is saying, we thank God. We give thanks for you, for what God is doing in you is what Paul is getting to in his prayer. The obvious question then to Paul's expression of thanks would be this. For what did Paul express such thankfulness? Well, we find the answer in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have to all the saints. Notice Paul did not need to know the Colossians on a personal level to give thanks to God for the faith and love which was demonstrated within and among them. The testimony of their faith and love preceded them. As I said, Epaphras has already given the testimony of these believers and their faithfulness to the Lord and their love for the saints to the Apostle Paul. Other faithful believers bore witness of this testimony. In verses 7 and 8, read with me. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Paul's prayer was not only to God, but was also focused on God as his Father. As we pray, we need to be aware that we obviously should approach our Lord with thanks, with thanksgiving and thankfulness within our hearts. I, I don't believe, honestly, there's times where we just cry out to God and we don't even know what to say. And I understand that I've been there and I've done that many times. And we are to be perpetually in prayer, as, as Aaron offered the incense perpetually before the Lord. Our life is to be consumed with prayer. In other words, again, uh, the matter of the fact is that Paul says we are to pray without ceasing in Thessalonians. But again, that does not simply mean that we are going about and that we are attempting to spend our time isolated from everyone and any, everything else in time of prayer, but rather that our hearts and our spirit before God is in consistent communion with Him in a God-honoring manner, a required and demanded manner of submission to Him. So we are to continually be in a spirit of submission unto the Lord. And there's times that we don't even know what to say or how to pray. Again, I confess that Scripture addresses that matter concerning the Spirit of God makes sense out of our nonsense when we know not how to pray. But at the same time, as we are consciously communicating or communing with our Lord, it should be that we approach Him with thankfulness. For even before we make any petitions known, do we not owe Him a debt of gratitude that is beyond our ability to ever exhaust? Is it not that He has been good and is good beyond that which we can ever express? And so we come before Him with thankfulness, not because, oh, if I thank God, then maybe, you know, He'll be kind in granting me. No, we thank Him because He's worthy of thanks. Regardless of the situation that we are in, we give thanks. Remember, where is Paul? 
He's in prison. And what's the first thing he says? We give thanks. We give thanks to be in prison. He's not saying that. We give thanks that God has brought us together in communion with, our, with the body of Christ together and with God himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks for the fellowship. We give thanks for the relationship. We give thanks because God is good. And regardless of our situation or circumstance, God still deserves praise and thanksgiving and submission. Our submission unto himself. So Paul's prayer, he states, we give thanks, which of course is of tremendous importance. But notice what he said, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, the statement made by Paul is one which not only joins all believers together, as I just mentioned, but it also identifies us with the Lord Jesus Christ in that it is his Father who is our Father as well. Notice again what he said. God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But go back to verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Do you see what Paul just did? He said, we give thanks to God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is acknowledging here this unity that exists and is present, not only between themselves, our Father, but between themselves, the church and himself, our Father, but also God, who is our Father, and also He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. After His resurrection, Jesus made this same reference to Mary. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. So even at his time before he ascended to the Father, Jesus is saying there to Mary, this is my Father to whom I will ascend. And then he says, but it's also your Father. He is my God. He is your God. Look at the unity that exists and is present here. By the way, is that not enough reason for us to approach God in every instance of prayer with thanksgiving? He is my Father, but he is also the Father of our Lord Jesus Therefore, we brothers together, and we are accepted in the beloved, in the only begotten Son of God, and hence we have access unto the very God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Father, because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is our High Priest, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, whose very life is our intercession. Second, notice with me, Paul prayed not only with thanksgiving, but he prayed with faithfulness. He says, praying always for you. Again, Paul's statement that he was praying always for you, hopefully this helps you to see something. that This is more than, than simply a mere gesture made to impress the Colossian church. As we looked at the altar of incense, again, this incense was offered perpetually unto the Lord. But notice, Aaron had to go in and dress the lamps on a regular basis. It, it was not something that just happened on its own. Aaron had to go in and dress the lamps and prepare it, but the incense was being offered continually before God. And it was, Aaron was responsible as a high priest to make certain that that incense did, never ran out, but that it was perpetually being offered unto God as he dressed the lamps. Listen, it does not just happen in our lives. 
You're not just going to pray because it's just going to happen. No, we have to address the lamps. We have to be attentive. But let us understand it is an attention to a continual, perpetual offering of thanks and spirit of humility and submission unto our Lord. Paul was faithful to remember this church in his prayers, obviously, as he states, and his prayers were focused, again, on their continued faithfulness to the gospel and their spiritual growth. Paul further expounded upon the reason for continued prayer in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What is his desire? His desire that they be filled with the knowledge, the understanding spiritually of the will of God, lacking nothing. So Paul's desire for all churches was that they spiritually grow in the knowledge of God. Paul never viewed this as an optional suggestion, but a necessity for the health and well-being of the church. He knew such growth was necessary for the church to be spiritually fruitful in godliness and to be spiritually strong. Look at verses 10 and 11 as he goes on to explain this further. That ye might walk worthy. Let's go back to verse 9. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, from Epaphras, obviously, do not cease to pray for you. He says, we are continually keeping you before the Lord with thanksgiving and in prayer to desire that you might desire and that we desire that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But then look at verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work or godly work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering, with joyfulness. <clears throat> Notice as well, here Paul lists some things that we're not going to get into this morning, but he says that you might walk worthy. So, first of all, before you can walk worthy, now what does walk worthy mean? Walk worthy does not mean that we become worthy of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. That is not what's being stated. To walk worthy is to walk accordingly. We are to walk according to the provision that's been made on our behalf. We are to walk according to the grace that has been extended to us. We are walking according to the, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us. Walk, to walk according to, live according to the power of the Holy Spirit and His presence dwelling within us. So Paul is not saying that we make ourselves worthy or by our good deeds or by even our submission that we become worthy. No. He is saying that we might walk in the same manner according to the provision that's been made on our behalf, the grace that's been extended to us, the mercy that's been given unto us, and the power that indwells us. So we might walk according in such a manner. So this was his desire. But notice he goes on to say, strengthen with all might, verse 11, according to his glorious power, there it is, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Notice he says, unto patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. These are evidences of one who is strengthened and one who is spiritually maturing and growing and has understanding in submission to the will of God. Third, look with me. Paul prayed with purpose. Verses 4 through 11. Let's just read these again. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye, all, as ye also learn of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto you, us your love in the Spirit, 
For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power and to all patience and suffering with joyfulness. So Paul's faithfulness to pray for this church, notice, was based on the testimony of the love and faith which they had to all saints. It says here that their love for the saints and their fruitfulness in the gospel in verses 4 through 8, which we won't read again. While many churches may be known for many things, what was it that the Lord Jesus declared his disciples would be known for? Their love for one another. That they would be known for their, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that ye have love one to another, or one for another. So godly love, obviously, by even what Paul is stating in these verses, produces godly fruit within the lives of those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means when he wrote in verses 5 through 8. Let's read these again. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, that confidence, that hope, notice the word hope here is a noun, not a verb, so it's saying that which is, that this is something of substance, the hope, the confidence which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. And he says that then Epaphras declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So the faithfulness to the gospel and the love for the other believers and one another as, as a body of believers was a testimony of their lives, which was evidence of the truth that they had come to the knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ, and now they were continuing in the knowledge and faith of Christ. Let me say this to you. This is important, I believe, for you to recognize. Godly love produces godly fruit, but that is not a one-time, one, one, one expression event. In other words, what I mean by that is this. There may be those who come along who declare love for God and demonstrate love for others for moments of time. But if they are continuing in the gospel and they are continuing in the love of God, the love of God will continually produce this fruit in and through them. This is what we refer to often even as sanctification, we are not, which does not just mean being cleansed. It does, sanctification does not solely mean I'm being cleaned up by God that God is just ridding my life of sin. Sanctification is that God has consecrated me unto himself, which is holiness unto him, not just, not, not just an absence of sin in my life. By the way, though there's an inherent sinful nature which exists within all men, let us be aware that there can be absence of actual present sin in people's lives, and that does not equate to holiness or consecration unto God. But I will say this, consecration and holiness unto God will result in there being an absence of sin, actively engaged in sin. And so we recognize this is a continual growth and maturity that is taking place. As we will further examine as we progress in our study of this epistle, Paul further declared the purpose for his continued prayer for the Colossian church in verses 9 through 11. Let's just read them one more time together. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire, and to desire that ye be, might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Did you see that? Not just have the knowledge of God. What does he say? 
increasing. That's the maturity, that's the continual growth, that is the consecration of one unto God, increasing, growing and maturing in the knowledge of God, which will then result in being strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. The more we know of Him, the more we experience the power of He who dwells and abides within us. Unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. By the way, Paul, is he not really demonstrating the very prayer he is praying? Paul's desiring that they grow in the knowledge and, and faith of Christ, but he's also demonstrating great patience and long suffering with joyfulness while he writes this epistle from prison. Although we can be quite certain that Paul no more desired to be in prison than would you or me. He was submitted to the Father's will as indicated by the prayer he offered unto the Lord. Paul was more concerned about the church and its spiritual health than he was his own physical health and well-being and freedom. You know, I would venture to say that it, it, we would probably be hard-pressed to find someone who would pray in such a manner today for this church if they themselves were in physical despondency and despair with as, that they would pray with as much fervency for the spiritual well-being and growth of others than they would their own physical health, well-being, or freedom. That's a shame to say, but I say it, it's probably very, a very scarce thing that we would find. Paul prayed for that which he was confident was God's will. Might I say this to you? I believe there's a great lesson here alone for us to learn and consider. I mentioned it earlier, but let me emphasize it and, and we'll finish this morning. Paul did not know when or if he would get out of prison at this point. And I'm not saying Paul did not pray unto the Lord and say, Lord, I sure would like if you'd deliver me out of here. <laughs> if it's your will. And again, that would not be wrong. In fact, that would be right for Paul to do according to the will of God. But notice what Paul spent his time doing. Expressing a prayer in which he was confident was the will of God. Think about this for a moment. We spend a lot of time praying for things that we don't even know whether or not this is God's will. And again, it's not that that is wrong to do. We are commanded to do. I'm not saying do not make your petitions known before God. But we must do so not offering it up as strange incense unto the Lord. We must do so as constantly being reminded and humbly in our spirit saying, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. This is what is good. There are many things I think would be good. There are things even I think would bring glory to God without question. There are things that I believe to be holy and righteous. And if God were to answer my prayer in this manner, I believe he would be glorified by it. But that may not be his will to do so. And it may be that his glory will be received even greater still through the manner in which he is working than that which I desire. So ultimately, I must submit myself to him and say, not my will, but thine be done. But how often do we spend so much time in prayer concerning things which we don't know whether or not it is the will of God, rather than committing ourselves to pray for that which is declared to be the will of God in our own lives and even within the body of Christ. I ask you this morning, with what are your prayers consumed? Do you offer a strange incense unto the Lord or do you offer 
a spirit and heart of humility and submission as you pray. Remember what Romans 12 tells us, of course, we refer to this verse often. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, this flesh and blood, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And again, reasonable means genuine, service means worship, ministry of worship. So it's, it's our genuine worship is us offering our bodies, our lives, a sacrifice unto God. But how does that take place? Does that mean we just go out and, and ask for martyrdom? Does that mean we go out and ask to be abused or ask to be persecuted? No, it means that we are in submission to God the Father at all times. Offering whatever he desires or his purpose for this flesh to go through, this body to go through. Lord, this is yours, not mine. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God in both body and spirit, which are the Lord's. Not one or the other. So let me say to you, in one sense of the word, our prayer, whether it is biblical, genuine or not, is manifested by whether or not we are submitting our lives as we live them unto the Lord. You cannot have a spirit of submission unto the Lord and then not be submitting yourself bodily unto the Lord. But might I say to you, you can't really offer your body as a living sacrifice without having a heart and spirit of submission unto him as well. Do you offer spirit and heart of humility and submission as you pray, or do you offer strange incense to the Lord? Let us be reminded of this truth. It is a privilege to have access to our Heavenly Father. Do you not agree with me? Should we not always come before him saying, Lord, first and foremost, thank you that I even have communion with you because you are not only my Father, you're not only our Father, but you're the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you accept me on the basis of the sufficiency and preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, not on, on my worth, not on my value. And I said to you last week, let me remind you of this truth. I don't know if you really understood what I was saying. You kind of looked at me a little funny then, and you may look at me a little funny again. But you have to understand what I'm about to say to you. This idea that we approach God because we can because we've lived clean lives and, oh, we've really tried to serve the Lord and we've done a lot of good things. Listen to me. There is never a moment in your life that you've approached the throne of God, been granted access to God, that sin has not been present in you. Never. Not one time. That alone dispels this whole argument or thought that we approach God. And even if he, or First John 1, 9, I've told you this many times. This is talking about fellowship, not relationship, meaning it's not about salvation, but it's about the fellowship we have with our Lord. If we confess our sins, we as believers in Christ confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice, I'm approaching him confessing my sins which are present with me. And the basis of this forgiveness is not I am clean and not sinful, neither is it that I beg and plead, confess. Not beg, not plead, not weep, not cry. Heart of contrition, yes. Spirit of humility, yes, that's, that must be present. But it's not in some outward emotion or outward expression of an inward emotion by which we are granted access or experience forgiveness. It's on the basis of what? He is faithful and just. And chapter 2 goes on to say, he said, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
So the basis of our whole acceptance and access to God the Father is because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is a privilege to have unlimited access to our Heavenly Father. And we should never abuse or misuse the privilege with selfish and self-centered demands or even requests that are made apart from a spirit of humility and submission to the Lord. Not my will. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And if we ask anything according to his will, John wrote, he heareth us. Notice, if it's not according to his will, he does not hear us. That doesn't mean God's not aware, but it's saying it is a strange incense before him. Don't waste your time attempting to pray. Spend your time in submission and humility before God. The sacrifice is not the time you spend. I'll admit to you, when I was young, much younger, and I'm finished, I read books on prayer. I was so guilt-ridden. And I remember I would get up early in the morning and I would go alone. When I had a family, I'd get alone by myself and I'd do my best to attempt to pray. And I was working a job. I was busy. I'd pray to the Lord. And it wasn't long before I found myself asleep. So I can actually have some empathy towards the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'd find myself asleep. And I'm not saying that because it's a good thing. I would say, wow. And I, I would feel so guilty until I began to understand it's not the time I'm spending, it's the manner in which I come before God. Whether I'm submitted to Him. Therefore, I can commune with Him without, throughout the entire day, whether or not I have gotten alone by myself in a moment or not. I can be in submission to Him continually, perpetually throughout the day, whether or not I've spent an hour in a prayer closet, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying you should not spend or designate time for prayer. I'm saying to you, if you do so offering strange incense to God, it's of no value or benefit anyway. And it means absolutely nothing. All your petitions, all your requests, all your desires, all your burdens, if you're just throwing these things upon the Lord and yet you're not submitting your heart and your spirit before Him, then it's a strange incense. And we are guilty of perverting and misusing the privilege of having access to God the Father. So may our prayers be that which is honoring unto Him as we would submit ourselves unto Him in all matters, in all things, perpetually. Let's stand together. Father.